Welcome everyone to Carnegie's Moscow Center English Language Podcast. My name is Alexander Gabruf, and today I want to talk about the, some ramifications of the current coronavirus crisis and the influence of the current crisis on the global debate about control and protection of societies through digital means and freedoms. And I'm joined by a terrific group of experts, Leonid Kovacic, China Watcher, Hi. Paul Stronsky, Senior Fellow at Carnegie Endowment. He follows closely post-Soviet space. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Last, I have Stephen Feldstein, who is non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie uh, with Democracy, Conflict, and Governance Program. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you. Uh, Lenin, I think that we should start really with China, because to me, it seems that China has been experimenting with the digital tools of control long before the pandemic. Uh, and we know that Chinese cities are world leaders in terms of number of cameras and in per capita terms china also is a global leader in using those tools of digital surveillance so far i think right now we are still in an early stage but it looks like china has reached a plateau pretty early on and what the chinese government is claiming is that all of these tools have been put to very good use and these are uh, they are here to protect the society in large and uh, this is basically one of the justification for moving along the way of establishing even more digital authoritarian control so uh, is is that true do you believe that these tools in the chinese context have really been efficient to control the spread and then uh second part of the question is how much is it really just about the cameras and facial recognition system and how much is it about fusing the data with cell phone operators and establishing a system where the government controls a lot of data uh, on citizens that are fused together well alex first of all uh, i think that yes uh, obviously these uh, technologies that uh, china applies to uh, track uh, and control coronavirus uh, of course they were useful uh, in some parts but uh, uh, these technologies themselves uh, could not solve all the problems that appeared with this coronavirus so uh, first of all uh, for example if we compare uh, china with taiwan for example uh, we can see that taiwan was uh, much more successful with uh, coping with this uh, coronavirus with uh, stopping the spread of this uh, uh, awful disease but uh, taiwan did not use all these uh, technologies that china applied taiwan only used uh, cellu cellular tower tracking uh, tracking of mobile phones in order to uh, enforce uh, self quarantine measures and china applied different technologies uh, and uh, among them is special recognition technology among them uh, phone tracking technology uh, tracking the mobile phones uh, these uh, uh, have qr codes uh, colors with different colors and uh, many other measures but still uh, we see that uh, china had uh, much more severe uh, outcomes of this coronavirus than taiwan why this happened? Uh, I actually think that uh, the main problem is the scale, uh, the scale of the country. Uh, in small countries like Taiwan, uh, actually, uh, they, of course, can apply these technologies, but they have uh, uh, also sufficient stuff in order to enforce uh, and use these technologies. But uh, in China, 
Yes, of course, they were successful compared with uh, some other countries. And maybe I think if we uh, think about the scale of China, uh, they really were the most successful in uh, uh, stopping the spread of the coronavirus. But uh, Chinese authorities, they say that they not only used these technologies, but also applied old school measures like that uh, neighborhood committees uh, in order to enforce people stay at home. And uh, nowadays we uh, can, can say for sure uh, which was uh, the best in, uh, in these complex of measures. Yeah, it's really very interesting that you bring this up because uh, I think that the Moscow government in Russia, for example, like we know that Russia is another authoritarian regime that really is trying to parade that it uses this uh, authoritarian like digital tools in a smart way. And then uh, Sergei Sabyanin, the mayor of Moscow, looks like the national champion in setting up all of these cameras, which were at display back at the World Cup in 2018. So today, as we record this episode, Moscow has introduced QR code and mandatory check by the police officers of everybody who is entering the metro stations. The result, uh, they didn't use the selective method, so the police uh, officers just choose whom they want to check. They started to check everybody who was entering the metro stations. As a result, there were large queues and large lines, so people had to wait for 40 minutes up to one hour to enter the station, and definitely there was zero social distancing, and many people were not wearing masks, so probably we will have a huge jump in cases in the coming week just because of uh, lack of these traditional measures uh, to support these digital tools, exactly what you were describing in the Chinese case. Uh, how efficient do you think this uh, use of China-style tools is in Russia overall, Leonid? And how much is Russia looking to China as a mentor, as a role model? Uh, obviously, I think that uh, Russia looked uh, at the uh, Chinese experience uh, uh, as the model of uh, enforcing measures. I think it is the problem of uh, our uh, computing power and of uh, our intellectual resources. So uh, we uh, we see that uh, the system doesn't work well because uh, we just started uh, introduce this system and uh, the uh, with such a short period of time uh, we just uh, don't able to introduce the good mechanism which is working okay uh, so everybody is kind of in crash course mode and everybody's learning along the way uh paul how uh, does it look in Central Asia and South Caucasus? Are the regimes there uh, successful in using those kind of technologies and how much are they looking to China? Um, I think it depends uh, on the specific regime. Um, there are you know, two governments in Central Asia that aren't really responsive at all to um, the coronavirus uh, epidemic. That's uh, Turkmenistan and Tajikistan. So um, you know, we really don't know what they're doing, and they're, and they're really failing their populations on all fronts. Um, uh, in uh, Kyrgyzstan, they don't really have the technology um, out there. So you're really looking at, at two country, uh, three countries, uh, Azerbaijan, uh, Uzbekistan, uh, and Kazakhstan. Um, 
Um, uh, Uzbekistan seems to be using a mixture of old school regime ta- techniques of locking down cities, preventing movement of cities and gaining sort of the help of these Mahala committees, these sort of self-policing neighborhood committees to try to re- reinforce uh, a lot of these um, uh, lockdowns. Um, in Azerbaijan, uh, you see something very similar to what you're seeing in Moscow, um, uh, but they're about 10 days ahead of Moscow. They impose this sort of uh, QR SMS system. Um, uh, and similar to Moscow, it had a lot of bugs. The system crashed um, as they were setting it up. Uh, it failed in the first few days, uh, denying people who had legitimate reasons to go out of their house uh, because of technical errors. Um, there was large misunderstanding in how um, uh, this was uh, rolled out, whether you needed to uh, you know, fill out your SMS request to leave the house, just take out the trash or walk the dog. Um, so there was a lot, lots of, of uh, 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 errors in how it was rolled out. Seems to be working a little bit better now, but there's still large-scale instances. You know, thousands of people have been, um, you know, uh, breaking quarantine. Uh, lots of cars on the roads that aren't supposed to be there. Black market of fake permanent passes that employees or essential workers can get. So there's a lot of, you know, the corruption that is in there uh, in these societies is a big is a big problem. Um, uh, and then we have uh, Kazakhstan, um, which is definitely using this, definitely eager to use this. Um, and uh, you know, President Takayev has talked about this and talked about getting this these uh, smart cities and facial recognition technology up and running across the country. Um, uh, you know, they are able to monitor the movements of cars um, uh, throughout the cities. Um, face masks kind of make facial recognition uh, a big que- uh, question. Um, but I think, you know, what we're seeing in both um, Azerbaijan and, and in um, uh, uh, Kazakhstan um, is that, you know, the initial responses um, have really been botched uh, in this crisis. Azerbaijan now has the largest number and it's spiking of coronavirus cases. Um, it used to be Armenia. It's now uh, uh, rapidly rising in Azerbaijan. Um, uh, and uh, also in um, uh, Kazakhstan, um, where you see a huge spike in cases of medical workers. In Almaty, about 350 people have been reported to have the coronavirus. Over half of them are medical workers. So I think you're seeing a huge um, you know, failure of the regular medical system and governance system to deal with this crisis. Um, and you're now starting to see um, these states deploy some of these more high-tech um, uh, uh, features. One of which the Kazakhs have just, um, uh, over the last few days, um, have uh, talked about how they're using drones. Um, and they produce these very slick almost commercials of drones going around trying to find violators, um, trying to find, you know, um, passageways into uh, the capital of Nur Sultan that are supposedly not supposed to be there. Um, and I think a lot of this, um, it's very slick. It, it makes it clear to the Kazakh people that the government is being responsive. But I think uh, some of this is a lot PR uh, to try to show that it is responding since the first uh, initial steps uh, of, of sort of curtailing the coronavirus have, have kind of been botched. What's your take? How are the locals perceiving those measures? Because the account in Moscow is pretty mixed. Uh, what, I, what I see in China is that the population has been more or less used to those systems. Uh, and since the feeling that the virus is real was very acute, uh, the tolerance was, was much higher. Mm-hmm. In Russia, I think that this is very mixed uh, signals because uh, there are a lot of people who are very angry about the way the government approaches that. And uh, there are a lot of people who are angry at the bugs and mm-hmm. uh, very real uh, epidemiological threat uh, that uh, was exposed today as uh, the system has collapsed. Uh, and then there are, there are some people who are talking about way if uh, the government infringes on our liberty using coronavirus as a pretext, 
it will never go away. It will keep uh, these instruments, it will keep the data and add just one more step into our privacy. So what's the debate like in other parts uh, of Eurasia? Um, I think, it, it again, it depends on the specific uh, country. I'll, I'll sort of do uh, you know three quick uh, studies. One is Armenia, one is um, Azerbaijan, and one is, is Kazakhstan. So Armenia was one of the first uh, countries to sort of push through this idea that uh, you could use cell phone tracking to try to monitor uh, people's connections um, and try to get more people under quarantine. It was very controversial. Um, uh, they put it uh, because of the authoritarian past. It's a democratic country now. They put it through parliament. Um, it failed on the first reading. It eventually was pushed through, but it is supposed to uh, eventually tick out uh, these regulations, and it's only supposed to be sharing um, specific health uh, measures. And I think that was uh, public pressure um, uh, and a lot of public watchdogs, um, both from within the ruling party and the opposition, um, uh, focusing in on uh, on these uh, uh, questions. Then in um, in Kazakhstan, I mean, I think the problem that you see um, in both Kazakhstan and, and in um, uh, uh, Azerbaijan um, is that these are very low trust societies. Uh, this pandemic has come at a time when the social contracts across the region have failed. Populations have little trust in state capacity to deliver services um, and populations have little trust in the capacity of states to do the right thing. So early on, um, you know, President Takayev in Kazakhstan, um, you know, he stopped the Navruz, the spring festival, stopped Women's Day festivities that often have a protest element to it. And a lot of people sort of thought that was an overreaction. It was a clampdown um, uh, uh, on, on civil society. Um, uh, and, and, and maybe it was, but looking back in retrospect, it probably was a smart idea um, at that point. So as sort of the virus becomes real, um, uh, and people sort of start to fear it. Um, people are a little bit more accepting um, of this technology um, and a little bit more forgiving um, of, of uh, things like that. However, in uh, uh, in Kazakhstan, there's no real discussion as there was in Armenia about when these measures will eventually uh, tick out. Um, uh, and there is growing concern um, uh, about uh, the ability to sort of misuse um, uh, this um, and sort of misuse uh, the coronavirus crisis uh, to, uh, you know, up the more traditional arms of uh, authoritarianism. Uh, as everybody's looking either at, at technical measures um, or looking at the virus, we are seeing sort of laws and other um, regressive laws passed uh, in other places. Um, and then in Azerbaijan, it's the most overt. Uh, they are basically tracking down the opposition and, and you know, trying to blame the opposition for breaking quarantine when they, when they break it, um, uh, uh, trying to sort of blame uh, the spread of the disease on, on uh, the opposition, either stoking misinformation. So in, 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 in Azerbaijan, they're clearly um, abusing it. Um, but that shouldn't surprise us because they've been using um, uh, you know, these technologies to track uh, their critics uh, for the past decade. Um, and now they're just doing it in, in the COVID uh, era. Steven, what's the debate like right now in the West? I think uh, in the United States and, and other countries in the West that have struggled so far to really confront uh, the spread of the virus, I think there's first and foremost uh, a question of capacity and competence uh, in terms of having the tools available needed to actually uh, take necessary steps to get the virus under control. And so I think that's part of the, the debate. What's, what's been interesting is that from what I've seen uh, when it comes to, for example, the potential rollout of kind of greater monitoring, I think there are a lot of people who are actually saying, well, maybe that's needed, that maybe we're at a point where uh, there's so little testing that's been done, that contact tracing has been minimal, uh, and that there is a, a real discrepancy between what is actually out there in terms of infections uh, and what is known. Uh, in terms of who has those infections, that something greater needs to occur in terms of, uh, of uh, addressing that gap. And so in some respects, uh, there is sort of a, there's been a, a movement, I think, to make up the difference between what has been viewed as a lagged state response uh, and the need to actually have tools available to address that. 
On the other hand, of course, uh, there's been uh, you know, a longstanding and a continually sharpened debate uh, when it comes to balancing privacy standards uh, with national interests and now public health interests. Uh, and while that debate has shifted and taken different forms depending on uh, the actual uh, issue at hand, so it could be everything from you know who owns your data and how does that relate to what social media companies are able to exploit uh, for advertising, uh, or it might relate to government uh, abuse uh, when it comes to using uh, this data to undertake uh, counterterrorism actions or so forth. You know, this now with this public health uh, issue, this is in some ways becomes the next extension of where this balance goes between uh, the need to have technolo technological tools that are appropriate to address a given situation, but uh, very big gaps when it comes to either a policy framework uh, or law uh, in terms of how long you know, such tools will be used, what are the safeguards surrounding those tools? What kind of accountability can one have when it comes to ensuring there isn't abuse uh, when it comes to the use of these tools uh, in the West, but in other countries uh, in general? Uh, is there a sunsetting provision? It will be narrowly confined just to pu the, the public health crisis, or will these tools end up being used in a broader way? Uh, and you know, who actually decides? Who gets to set the bounds for uh, what is appropriate and what isn't? And you know, the, the problem is that so much of this, uh, when it comes to having a legislative framework, uh, it's still being kind of figured out, uh, particularly when it gets to more cutting edge, uh, newer surveillance instruments uh, related to artificial intelligence, related to facial recognition, uh, and so forth. Uh, and so that's that's kind of where the debate is. I think there's a recognition by a growing number of people that we need more. The West needs more in terms of being able to respond. Uh, but there's there's a you know general wariness when it comes to ensuring that you don't uh, 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 get uh, abuse that that results as a consequence of being of overly adopting uh, tools uh, with uh, while having sort of a loose framework in terms of protections. I think that in places like Russia, you have the debate around uh, the use of police uh, of the AI-powered facial recognition systems also to track criminals and uh, just a normal use of surveillance cameras for law, uh, for law enforcement purposes. And I think that uh, the consensus view is not there yet, but there is increasing number of liberal voices as well saying, well, probably police using that to track down criminals is a good thing. And then, yeah, the definition is whether the opposition figures are labeled as criminals or not. But overall, that's the major direction as the system should evolve to make police, for example, more efficient. And then comes the coronavirus and people say, oh, you know, it's actually very handy to fight this disease. Uh, is there a debate like that in the Western law enforcement community as well, that these tools are actually can be handy? You know, one of the thing, interesting things is that there isn't a lot of evidence when it comes to the crime-fighting abilities of these tools to actually lead to outcomes that people uh, are, are, are looking for when it comes to suppressing uh, illegal activities. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Um, you know, companies claim a lot of things when it comes to facial recognition, surveillance networks, smart policing, and so forth. Uh, but what we've seen is that so many of these tools actually are beset by bias, uh, by algorithms that are incorrectly used. Uh, and by um, uh, inappropriate uh, um, uh, deployment. Uh, for example, you know, with predictive policing, I mean, there's so many instances uh, of either um, tools being uh, leading to false matches uh, or when it comes to even making decisions based on algorithms that are biased because of bad data. Uh, so you know, there's a big debate in general in terms of to what extent are these tools helpful uh, when it comes to fighting crime. And so it's hard to kind of make that, then, that, that translation where 
you know, it's not as if I think there's a, a full consensus that, wow, these tubes really have done a good job of reducing crime across uh, the way. In fact, I think what a lot of people point to when it comes to reducing crime rates, which is uh, a trend that has, you know, uh, occurred uh, in the last 10, 20 years in the United States are other social cohesion factors, uh, other issues, some many of which, you know, are still trying to be, uh, researchers are still trying to, to figure out. And that kind of gets to kind of one of the, the more bottom line issues, right? That, um, you know, tech, I don't think that there is a sense or a feeling that technology is ultimately the solution. It can be an enhancement. It can help when you have underlying factors in place in countries, you know, a degree of social cohesion, transparency and, and uh, legitimacy of the government, uh, open communications when it comes to understanding the spread of the virus and a belief by the community that uh, certain steps are needed to deal with it. Then technology on top of those issues uh, can really be a difference maker. But te technology as a substitute for some of these um, these important factors when it comes to societal cohesion and legitimacy of the government doesn't really work. And I think that, that points to some of the, the differing outcomes we've seen worldwide when it comes to success in a place like Taiwan uh, versus a real falling down with many of the authoritarian governments that we've discussed uh, in Central Asia, uh, if not Russia as well. Uh, and so that's something that I think a lot of people continue to kind of point back to, even as we could have this ongoing debate about technology and its role. Okay. Leonid, as far as I understand, in China, the whole system has been a trial mode in preparation for a much bigger and more ambitious endeavor, namely the social credit system. And that's not only the system to monitor the behavior uh, of individuals, but also to guide their behavior where everybody gets 1,000 basic points, for example. And if you do the right thing from the government's viewpoint, you increase uh, your social capital, you increase the number of points you have, and that improves your access to various social benefits. Whereas you do missteps, uh, your number, your rank is decreased, and then there are various punishments. Uh, so what is now the attitude in the Chinese society? Wasn't, wasn't the coronavirus crisis and what's portrayed by the state propaganda as a very uh, deliberate and very forceful government response for these digital needs, uh, a perfect advertisement for taking the next step and uh, introducing the social credit system in China? Uh, well, Alex, there are two points in this problem. The first point is that uh, China society, talking about social credit system, China society is not really good at aware of it. Uh, about uh, 40 or even 50 percent of Chinese people, they did not even uh, heard, uh, heard about it. In Chinese media, I mean in mainland Chinese media, they not so often report uh, about this social credit system, but uh, talking about technologies and high-tech uh, civilians, I think that uh, uh, nowadays this uh, coronavirus crisis highlighted that uh, there was a success of using these technologies. I personally think that Chinese media will portray this uh, high-tech as a key in order to uh, enforce strict quarantine measures, in order to enforce uh, the measures to uh, uh, to protect the whole society from this coronavirus crisis. So uh, I suppose personally that uh, this uh, high-tech surveillance would be a new normal in China uh, after this coronavirus coronavirus crisis. So uh, this crisis, uh, I mean, it just kickstarted uh, the fast development of uh, new technologies in China. By the way, uh, uh, maybe you have heard that uh, uh, China Central Bank, they uh, started pilot testing of uh, uh, China Digital Yuan. 
and uh, they started this testing just uh, uh, just now when the uh, epidemic uh, of coronavirus is just have not ended. Uh, why? Because they say that uh, it's better to use uh, uh, mobile payments. Uh, it's better to abandon cash. Uh, and uh, of course, with these uh, techniques, uh, it is uh, better for government to track uh, people movements, to track their activities, because they can track uh, their purchases. Uh, so, of course, uh, it's, it's just one example, but uh, I, I'm pretty sure that uh, this coronavirus crisis will uh, stimulate the development of uh, these uh, surveillance technologies and, of course, uh, the social credit system. Because, look, uh, the main problem of social credit system was uh, it was really patchy. Uh, because the different uh, local governments, they did not want to share the crucial data for the system with each other. But uh, nowadays, they had to do it in order to prevent the spread of uh, epidemic. So, yes, I think that uh, this crisis was stimulated to happen. Okay, Paul, we see that in Russia, uh, the crisis is perceived as a very good advertisement of Chinese model. Uh, Margarita Simonian, the editor-in-chief of RT, has recently tweeted that uh, when people ask me whether I wanted uh, Russia to be like China with this regard, I was always kind of ashamed and was trying to hide my views. But now the epidemic uh, allows me to openly say that, yes, I want Russia to be like China. What's going on in other parts uh, of the former Soviet Union? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, authoritarian leaders uh, certainly see these tools um, and they certainly see, um, uh, you know, China pushing these tools uh, as very beneficial to trying to shore up uh, uh, their governments. And those that um, uh, have the money or have the sort of inclination are certainly going to keep on looking uh, towards uh, towards China and uh, towards ways to um, to incorporate uh, more and more of these these tools. Many of these governments, you know, Kazakhstan, Azerbaijan, um, uh, Armenia, um, you know, as part of their efforts to um, uh, you know to you know clamp down on corruption, they've been moving towards a digital platform anyway, um, uh, and that has even been supported by Western governments, this whole e-governance governance initiative. And so I think, you know, there's definitely, um, uh, you know, going to be people looking uh, and, and governments looking towards China because they're lacking fairly, um, uh, you know, robust packages uh, of this. But at the same time, um, you know, populations, particularly in Central Asia, are also wary of China. They're wary of China um, both as a source of uh, the illness that that is definitely under the surface. Um, uh, and China has also made some, you know, some missteps um, in um, uh, in just its sort of public diplomacy, whether that has to do with policies inside China um, or policies um, uh, outside of China. Uh, China seems to be trying to sort of make up for that with, um, you know, technical assistance and aid, um, medical aid, but uh, clearly I think some also other types of technical assistance probably in these digital tools are also going to be uh, coming down the road uh, to these governments as well. But they do, these governments have to walk a fine line between um, rising anti-Chinese sentiment among the populations um, and the need to sort of have, uh, or their desire to have these, these new t technological tools that China offers. Uh, Stephen, it looks like this uh, issue of data privacy and access to data and the way different governments around the world uh, use those uh, instruments uh, has been with us before. But do you, do you expect a more active global debate around those issues and uh, attempt to regulate them uh, or uh, in 
do we expect a more kind of coordinated, universal approach, or is it just another battlefield between the uh, U.S.-led camp and, let's say, China-led camp? Undoubtedly, we're already at a point where we're kind of reaching an inflection moment when it comes to these technologies being used at scale uh, in ways that are now uh, definitively linked to particular interests, uh, public health, national interests kind of uh, put together. Uh, and so it, it would come as little surprise to me that you are going to see kind of a, a wider um, uh, a wider scope of discussion in international fora as well as, as within individual countries about how should these technologies be used, what is appropriate, and how do we need to define the rules of the road in a, in a clear way, because so much of this right now has been kind of made up uh, as they come, whether it's through emergency decrees, uh, you know, unusual grants of authority, uh, or, or just there's no, there's sort of a vacuum of, of legislation uh, in general. And so, uh, you know, new directives are put in place uh, without the benefit of actually working off of existing norms. You know, what I think is really interesting is that you know, I don't worry a lot when it comes to liberal democracies and abuse. I think there's a natural way that they'll self-regulate given their strong rule of law frameworks. And I also think that there's not going to be much debate when it comes to authoritarian countries adopting these technologies. They already are. They're going to keep doing that. Uh, it's part of their the rationale for authoritarianism. Uh, and, and populations will have little to say about that other than through mass demonstrations on the street. Where I think you will have the big debate, though, will be countries in the middle uh, that could lean in, in either direction. So I'm thinking about places like Brazil, Chile, South Africa, Indonesia, countries that uh, are ostensibly democratic, uh, but have a lot of inherent weaknesses when it comes to accountability and legitimacy, uh, where there will be a temptation to, to use these tools to more and more uh, get at some of these deficiencies uh, through governance. And where I think that's, to me, where so much of the, the next steps of discussion uh, will really need to be hammered out and where so many of the outcomes uh, will make themselves felt. That looks like an increasing and growing and very important field for all of us to engage. I want to thank everybody for uh, today's discussion. Uh, thank you so much, guys. Stay safe, stay home, and uh, hope to continue this conversation soon.